Hey, just a heads up that the following content may be disturbing or triggering for some listeners and is not appropriate for children. Please take care of yourself and others who may be listening with you. Welcome to the Bonus Babies Podcast, a show that has no easy answers, only hard questions. I think our grievances and our anger only hurt ourselves, and the weight can drown you. I, I'm here today, the person that I am, because I live in a country and a society that fed us imperfectly, that housed me imperfectly, that cared for me imperfectly, and yet here I am. And I remain optimistic that we have the capacity to help people like my family. I think when we, or when I, spend the time to reflect on the people that hurt me, it, it sits in my chest like an undigested pie that I've swallowed whole. And they're not gonna feel that, I am. And I think by channeling that into doing something other than grievance, I've been able to move forward. I've been in great therapy. I have great friends and family that I'm able to talk to. And honestly, sharing this book was one of the most cathartic and freeing experiences of my entire life. Can you tell me what you call the kids who you've cared for over the years? We feel that the children that we receive coming into our home are bonuses. So we call them bonus babies. I love that. This is your host, Jane Amelia Larson, and I'm Akasa, a court-appointed special advocate volunteer for youth in foster care. Yeah, I know, it's a mouthful. In the same way Akasa works, I explore all things in the foster care maze by talking to kids, parents, caregivers, attorneys, social workers, therapists, really anybody and everybody who will speak to me to keep the conversation open and the information flowing about all things Casa. Hi there. This is Jake Eberly, the producer of the Bonus Babies podcast. And today, Jane Amelia speaks with David Ambrose. David Ambrose is a national poverty and child welfare expert. 30 years ago, he was a homeless, malnourished child removed from his mentally ill mother's custody after years of neglect and abuse. He's a former foster youth and now an advocate and an activist and author of the memoir, A Place Called Home, which will be available on September 13th. David has quite a story. Enjoy the episode. Hello, I'm here with David Ambrose. David, hello. 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 Welcome to you. <laughs> Welcome to you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. I read your book. I'm wowed. I know it's coming out on September 13th, and our listeners will hear this episode before then, and everybody will be buying it, and you'll be the bestseller. Oh. It will be a bestseller, I'm sure. So. Thank you. Tell me a little bit about who you are, where you're from, family of origin, all that stuff. Absolutely. Um, well, my story really begins 40 plus years ago in New York City. My family, which consists of my mom, my brother, and my sister, we were homeless for the better part of 11 years. And we lived in and around New York City for most of that. And in those wanderings, we, we experienced all the things you might imagine and, and many that you might not. Um, the book opens up with one of my earliest memories, which is a night that my family almost died from exposure and how we survived. And that's really the first 11 years. My mom, suffering from an ongoing and progressive mental illness, was unable to care for us and, and often violent, which led us later to go into foster care. Right. And what, of course, is amazing about the conundrum of that is that your mother fought for you fiercely, regularly. Yeah. And yet she treated you very, very badly most of the time, didn't she? I think what folks who are listening may have experienced with, because many of us are touched by it, is someone who's suffering from a mental health issue is almost, for, from my point of view, the equivalent of a disease like cancer. You can't really be mad at them. It's a disease they don't control. And for my mom, she had no control over it. So while she did have violent outbursts and, and treated us, as you noted, very poorly and was unable to care for us and all of those things, at the end of the day, I, I love her and I actually care for her today. I think mental health remains something that we don't really deal with, commensurate to the issue it is in our society. But uh, I love my mom dearly. She is the reason I think my brother, sister, and I have the lives that we have in terms of not just surviving, but ultimately thriving, three siblings, all healthy, all with advanced degrees, all with happy, healthy families. And whatever the origin, it all started with my mom. 
Yeah, no, I, I'm particularly struck by the epigraph in your book. It is miti non Okay, I'm going to say it correctly, okay? Um, say it for me. Illegitimi non carborundum. Which means what? In my understanding, it's one of the words that meant so much to me when I first read them in Margaret Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale. It means don't let the bastards grind you down. That's right. And you didn't let them grind you down. No. No, I did not. None of them. Okay, so your mom is gravely ill. She's sometimes recovers enough to kind of get you guys on your feet for a moment, but that never lasts. You quickly become adjusted to moving and fleeing and with only the things you could carry, no matter where you were, in what weather, what situation or anything. And that continued until you were 11 years old. So was your mom ever treated or diagnosed? You just knew that she was ill. I know that. Yeah. But do you ever remember that? The, was there any kind of process for her? Yeah, you know, my mom had sometimes and infrequent interactions with different mental health providers, which kind of helped us understand, and I was young, that she had a serious issue and it was getting worse. You know, one time she did go away and came back and it was very unclear to me as a young kid what was going on. Um, but ultimately we came to understand her, her mental illness was multiple and overlapping. And if you kind of are at all familiar with seeing homeless people on the streets or, or people in our shelter system, there is an epidemic of mental health issues that are untreated. And yes. today I, I actually help care for my mom. Um, having found her homeless again when I came out of college. It's been something I've taken on for 20 years now. My mom is stable. My mom, for everything that she has done, uh, is also responsible for me being here. I love her deeply. And I, I have this image of my mom always that I wish I could sit down and talk to the woman in that prison of fear and delusion that's in there. And you mentioned sometimes she would emerge and she did. And I knew that that's the mom she would be if she could just not be sick. The other introduction or the earliest part of the pages of the book, in addition to that phrase, is a dedication to my mom who taught me to forgive and to conquer one impossible thing at a time. And my mom is in that battle every day to the demons that haunt her. Yeah, I, I was struck by the fact that your book is full of forgiveness for your mom for the many adults who didn't listen to you, for the many adults who mistreated you, for the people who abused you. Somehow you've arrived at this stage in your life and you are able to forgive. That not that remarkable? I mean, don't you find that remarkable? I do. <laughs> that's, that's beautiful. And thank you for saying that. Um, I think our grievances and our anger only hurt ourselves and the weight can drown you. I am here today, the person that I am, because I live in a country and a society that fed us imperfectly, that housed me imperfectly, that cared for me imperfectly. And yet here I am. And I remain optimistic that we have the capacity to help people like my family. I think when we, or when I spend the time to reflect on the people that hurt me, it, it sits in my chest like an undigested pie that I've swallowed whole. And mm -hmm. what good is that? They're not, they're not going to feel that I am. And I think by channeling that into doing something other than grievance, I've been able to move forward. I've been in great therapy. I have great friends and family that I'm able to talk to. And honestly, sharing this book was one of the most cathartic and freeing experiences of my entire life. I'm sure. I'm sure. And I think that's very true when people write about very painful things in their life. It does become or can often be cathartic and also allows for others to help to voice their own experiences because someone is like you is brave enough to do so. Yes. And I, in all of my speeches over my life and what I hope to do with this book too is be a voice for all of my foster siblings, hundreds of them. Their names, I can't even remember all their names and, and the other kids in the shelters when I was a child. Um, I am alive and I sometimes think of my life as something of like Forrest Gump meets Hillbilly Elegy, where through a incredible array of circumstances, 
had the chance and, and skill and privilege of speaking and sharing my story and tr <laughs> emotional and trying in that to share the story of a whole host, a whole generation of children that are experiencing today, today, the same thing that I did in foster care on the streets, hungry and impoverished. And it is unacceptable. Um, it is still happening. Absolutely. And it's unacceptable. Yes. Yes. All right. So let me go back then when you were little. So you and your brothers and sisters organized yourselves and Alex ran away. You helped him to run away, right? Yes, that's correct. Yeah. So tell me about that. So he's the oldest in the family, right? Uh, my sister's the oldest. My brother's the middle. Yep. I've forgotten. He's just barely older than you and yeah. she's just barely older than him, right? Yeah. Okay. So you guys arranged for it that somehow he was the best person to take off first. What happened? So my mom... Um, my mom really at times would focus on my brother and he bore a significant brunt of the violence. And so when we were, you know, 10 through 12, we figured out that my mom might kill us and he might be the first one. And that was really our rationale in sending him off. We realized that we couldn't all go. We didn't have the resources. So we stole a little, stole a bike hid some money, and we were able to send my brother off on a bicycle from Massachusetts to go back to New York to live with a family that we had encountered in our wanderings. And um, Hundreds of miles on a bicycle, right? That barely worked, right? That barely worked. And this is why we were definitely still children in some respects. And the ironic part is my brother made it. He made uh, it. I know. He made it. My brother made it. You can say a lot of things about the emperor's kids, but <laughs> we're resilient. Uh, he made it and he stayed with this rather remarkable woman who's actually in the book. And, uh, right. She, that's Brenda, right? Um, you know, I, I can only think of her real name, which I should not say. Okay. Her name is Brenda. <laughs> right. <laughs> she, um, she, to my knowledge was a prostitute and she had two boys that, uh, we became friendly with and she took care of us when we were young. Not, not a ton, but for a moment. And my brother went back there and she took him in. And back in Massachusetts, where my brother and brother, sister and I had, had been living, my mom just quickly devolved even further into delusion and violence, which led ultimately to, to me entering foster care. Right. But you also tried repeatedly to get help and it would backfire. The one that sticks out to me the most is when you spoke finally to the woman from D.A.R.E. Yeah. And she didn't help you either, ultimately, right? You know, you said something earlier that really struck me, which is forgiveness. And when I look back, that's a great example of it. But I also think about, for instance, when we did have an apartment once, and I remember the judge evicting us. And I remember looking up at that fellow in his robe in this wooden room in New York and thinking, you're condemning us to the streets. And so, yeah, the police officer in middle school didn't do what she should have done. But neither did the priests or the, the folks out in DSS and the Department of Social Services or all the other adults that saw this woman wandering, the shelter leaders. So I think we collectively do turn away even today. I think we turn away because it's overwhelming. And what are we going to do? But yeah, the DARE officer, school nurses and different people that saw the bruises on my face or my body or the condition that I was in, school, librarians. It was not hard to see what was going on, and people chose to look away. Right. And then finally, after one particularly bad incident in which you were truly gravely injured, you took yourself to the courthouse, saved yourself, <laughs> essentially, right? Yeah. Little did I know it was traffic court, but... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> okay. You know what? It's It, it counts. It counts. It okay. It <laughs> absolutely does. And how funny that I stumbled into the hall of justice looking for some. And, <laughs> and, and I really thought that was a moment that it would save us. And and the unfortunate part was it, it was the beginning of uh, <laughs> a deeper level of health that I didn't know yes. existed. Um, mm -hmm. A lot of things you can say about kids who struggle with their parents who are suffering from mental illness and the violence. But there is love. There's imperfect love. And when I went into foster care, with a rare exception, there was all of the violence and little of the love. 
And even when you did think you had love, that was robbed too, even though maybe it was repaired to some extent with Holly and Steve. But at, all right, so be, be, before we get to that, so what happened then? Your sister went with your brother, right, mm -hmm. into Brenda's home, and you were difficult to place. So when I went to foster care in a bygone era, but not far back, gay children were considered problematic and something to be treated. And I was unable to be placed in a normal foster home because of that condition. So it was really challenging to find a home for me. And they ultimately segregated me into a juvenile delinquent facility, a congregate care, rural, I would call it a kitty jail. And uh, the kids in that facility were very violent. And I did not necessarily belong there. And quite quickly, I was targeted by other kids in the facility and some of the staff. And uh, it was very soon after entering foster care that I was first assaulted. And uh, that, that began a period of terror in my life until I left that facility and was reunited shortly and briefly with my brother and sister. Right. But even the therapist there, James, mm -hmm. was terrible to you. Terrible. Yeah. I mean, it's criminal behavior, really. I mean, I, I don't know whether he's still out there, but I, <sighs> I hope not. Well, I'll tell you, there's so many folks like that in the life that I only look forward and say, what the hell can I do to help other kids? Because I don't think I can do anything to, I think the universe will sort that all out. And all these folks you bring up, absolutely. Someone who should never be near children. Even kids in delinquency deserve respect and love and rehabilitation. And that's not what was going on in this facility. But the part, and this is the challenge I have for everybody is, yes, condemn these people and we'll talk about others. But I always ask folks when they're done condemning, what can you do? What can I do? What can we do? Because the bad actors are there. The good actors are listening. Let's jump in and we can all do something. But yeah, absolutely. That He should never have been anywhere within hundreds of feet of vulnerable children. And we all should be much more involved in what's going on in these places in our own communities today. Yes, I, I agree completely. Um, so you ended up with your brother and sister, but in a terrible foster home. Yeah, so <laughs> I was so excited to be reunited after being apart for them. I hadn't seen my brother since he had run away. Yeah, and you really miss them, right? Because you yeah. guys were close. You, you, you guys were like in the trenches together, yeah, day in and day out, right? We were each other's pod. I mean, we were we were it, and um, and our mom. And that was it. That was our world. Um, we survived together. We watched each other's back. We guarded each other in public places that were scary and violent. Um, we took care of each other. And uh, when we went into the foster home, I was so excited. First of all, to be out of that facility. Just can't even begin to describe how I felt coming out of there. And then to see my brother and sister, it was it was like, oh, yeah, this is what I meant when I was going into foster care. This is what was supposed to happen. Right. Because it was a house, mm -hmm. right? And there were other kids and there was yeah. a, a mother and a father. So your first impression was, oh, this will be okay. Yeah. And, and you know, how little do we know what goes behind behind those front doors. And it quickly became very clear to me that this was yet another place that should not necessarily have state children in their care. They were abusive. They were, I, I could tell you a specific thing, but I would just say they should not have had children. And they made my life individually a living hell in so many ways. And I continued to receive the message and the treatment for fixing my sexuality and they were petty and cruel. And I just look back at that time as one of the darkest periods of my life. And your older brother and sister took off, right, without you? Yeah, you know, it's um, my brother and sister uh, are our children at this point. We're children. You're all children. Yeah. We're children, vulnerable, yeah. scared, lonely children. And as you say in the book, at one point, you just have to figure out how to save yourself, right? Yeah. And I I hold no ill will for my brother and sister for running away from that facility. They they were in a school together. I was not in that school. And so they spent that day when they should have been in school taking a uh, in New England called a Peter Pan or a Greyhound bus. Most people might know of it. 
Yep, I know of it. Uh, there you go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, out of out of the city where we were living, and they left me behind. And you know, we've talked a lot about it, but at the end of the day, I we were being erased in a horrible environment, and they had to figure out a way to save themselves, and they did. And I am glad that they did. But I stayed there for a period longer, and it it descended into. Uh, a version of hell. I know this is hard, David, and I, I, I appreciate that you're, that you're even willing to talk about it like this. And I know that you often speak of your experiences, but that doesn't necessarily make it any easier when something hits you, right? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I'm in my forties and part of the reason I wrote this book is to move people from empathy to action, do something. Because there's too many kids experiencing what I did. And it part of my emotion is this fierce sense of injustice that I had. And I think about kids today going through that. Still going still. through it. Just like what's happening, what happened to you. They're still going through it. They're every day. Every day. And I don't even... And people don't think about it enough. It's hard. So It's hard. And then yes. you think, what can I do? And that's what I wanted to answer with this question. I... I wanted to remove the shame and use my emotion as a superpower. And that superpower is to share my story and, and move people to do something. But yeah, I appreciate that space and gather my wits a little bit. But that foster home, I stayed for a while longer. And they were very cruel. They were very cruel. They, they were investigated for abuse after my brother and sister ran away and they were found to have done so and lost the ability to foster older kids was the solution. However, I was- Which seems phenomenal to me that they should have taken away their licenses completely. You know, I think there's such a crisis of placements. There's so few and so many kids that need it. And I'm not justifying their decision, believe me. I have the scars too, to say why. But I think there is such a pressure on this system that's underfunded and overwhelmed. Yes. With children in need and families in crisis. Two thirds of the kids entering foster care are there because of neglect, which is a euphemism for poverty. Yes. If we stopped that intake of kids and families that just need a little bit of love and support, we could focus on the kids that really need to be removed, like my brother and sister and I. But I understand the system. It doesn't mean I, I think it was right. But it was what it was. And, and we have underfunded a system. And then we're shocked when things like this happen. We're shocked when no one steps up to foster or not enough. We're just shocked. We clutch our pearls and we're like, God, how could this happen? It happens because not enough people are stepping up to the bat to do the hard work that these people did. And I condemn them. Believe me, I'm first in line. But at the same time, at least they opened their home. <laughs> and I'm not saying it was okay. And I have all, all the knowledge and, and remembrances but at least they open their home. That's more than most of us do. And I'm, I'm hopeful that if you can't foster and you can't adopt, what can you do? And that's what I hope people will do after listening to this and, and reading the story of May and Buck and being like, how could these people be given a child? And then wondering, how can I be given a child? Right. So you mentioned a superpower, but you have another. And that is somehow you always get it done for yourself. So you revolted. You had an epiphany. You're like, I'm out of here, right? Yeah. You know, that was the last time I let someone hit me. And it was in that home. Um, you know, uh, part of the punishment in, in, in torture in that placement was I was prevented from basically going to school because they knew that that's what I wanted. And that's what I always thought of as my way out of this. And uh, she one day decided that I wasn't going to go to school. And they would rent me out for labor and and things and instead. And uh, I just, that morning, I just refused. And despite her her hitting me and screaming and all these things, uh, my brother and sister had been gone for a few months or a while. And I just decided in that moment that I was done, that I was my own jailkeeper. And I was letting myself out and that I was done with this, all of this. And that didn't mean self-harm. It meant I am done with people having power over me and hurting me. And that self-realization allowed me to take next steps, which then changed the course of my life. Um, Not every kid can do that. We shouldn't expect children to do that. But I've never let anyone hit me since then. 
and that woman tried and they tried to erase me, but I, I remained and I remained and I remain today. And you mentioned when we spoke, you said that you were drowning and someone caught your hand. Yeah. Um, Can you tell me about that? You know, one of the opportunities I had while I was there was the chance to volunteer at a YMCA for a summer camp. And I met this remarkable person, Holly, who was the camp director. And she had a beautiful daughter, Bree, who was in the program. And I just lived that summer not realizing that this woman saw exactly what was going on all over my face. And she fought to get me into her custody, her and her husband, Stephen. And they weren't foster parents at the time. They fought, I learned later, for years to try and get me uh, into their custody. And when I finally had that epiphany we spoke of, I was able to myself reach out to Holly and see if she still would take me. And enthusiastically did she. And it was that hand that reached below the surface of the water that pulled me up and got me above the water for uh, the first time in quite a while. And uh, Holly is a remarkable person who, you know, is honestly the embodiment of what I'm trying to do. You know, Holly didn't look around and go, who's going to help this kid? <laughs> She's like, I'm here. I'm going to try. And not everyone can be a foster parent. I get that. But she didn't look around for someone else to try and help. She did. Even got a lawyer to try and get me. And I am always struck by that fact that she took it upon herself uh, for years to fight for me. And then fought with me to salvage me uh, from all the experiences I'd had up to that point. And I tell the story in the book of just the trauma I had around food and, uh, you know, what she tried to do to help me overcome the weaponization that had happened in previous placements around food, the starvation I'd experienced my whole life, and how traumatic I found the whole thing. And, you know, she, she just opened up this bounty in her kitchen is like go go get eat whatever you want and like so many foster kids who or so many children who grew up in poverty like this concept of you open the fridge and there's stuff there it's like <laughs> people don't realize how absurd it is how crazy it seems to me to just be able to reach into the fridge and, and pull out food and have food be there and the stuff's not spoiled and you don't have to go wait in line and beg so you know, she inherited something that was pretty broken and, and did a lot of loving and got me much further along in a healing process. And all during this time, you never had a casa, right? I did not have a casa. I'm a huge fan of casa. And, you know, in some weird way, Holly was a sort of casa for a while before yeah, she became my yeah. foster parent. Casas, yeah, it sounds like she was. For If you don't mind, casa's court-appointed special advocate. And it's basically like a big brother, big sister that's specially trained to work with children that are engaged with the courts. And they are a remarkable asset and addition in a way that people can contribute. It's a big brother, big sister. You volunteer, you get to know the child, and you're given a voice to be that voice for a child who doesn't have the language or, or capacity necessarily to advocate for themselves. So she, in a way, weird way, became that person. And as did Stephen, her husband, um, and they fought, for, they fought for me for many years and, and supported me and support me today. Their photo, I'm looking at their photo above my desk here of um, both sisters, that their daughters, my sisters, and Holly and Steve, they're just here beneath my other photo, which is of my biological family. And you say very clearly in the book that, uh, you know, it wasn't a perfect family, that stuff happened, that they, you, know, you had to learn how to how to work together. You had to also learn forgiveness. Yeah. And, uh, and you appreciate that they, that they allowed for that. And you allowed that for them as well. Yeah. I mean, I think everyone listening has a family and know how hard it is. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Never mind a foster family, but any family. And love is a discipline. <laughs> it is not a default. You have to focus on it and, and lean into it. And for, forgiveness is a discipline. It doesn't mean you forget the terrible things. Lord knows I haven't for anybody. I remember. But who does that help? And this beautiful family did everything they could in their skill set and their capability. I went into that home with nothing, nothing broken. And they, I mean, I, re I remember they... <laughs> 
I had no clothes. I had nothing. And this was a blue collar family. I mean, they were working class people. And they took me to JCPenney and they, I think it was like the first pair of new underwear I'd had in an eon. And it was such a revelation, you know, um, teaching me to drive, you know, what a, what a crazy thing that was and how much patience. Steven in a big had. old truck too. Not oh my just God. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that was a form of torture. You know, my foster dad, Steven would take me out in his Toyota. It was right after it was, a, it was from the era. If, if folks were listening, remember Datsun when, when Toyota used to be Datsun <laughs> and it was the first truck after that. So you can imagine it was, it was from 1904, if you will. No power steering. And it was his truck. He was a contractor. And he took me out to drive and he would chain smoke and just was patently patient with me and forgave me. You know, I ran over the mailbox one time and he was just like, are you okay? You know, when I when I was expecting to be hit. Right. And didn't he say something like, I never liked that mailbox. (laughs) I think... Good on him, right? <laughs> but like, what a what a demonstration of love, you know? I think sometimes men have a hard time showing affection. And he showed love. He knew exactly. I was afraid he was going to hit me. Not because he'd ever had, but because that's what people do. That's what I learned. Yeah, that's what you expected. Yeah. And I ran over a damn mailbox in a car. I mean, if there was a moment that I deserved something in my mind at the time, and he he wanted to know that I was okay. And then he made a joke. And then he got me back out on the road and made sure that I learned how to drive. That's love. That's family. That's, you know, forgiveness on his part. Um, you know, kids are, I would say, just 18 years of learning to forgive, right? And he he was a beautiful, is a beautiful human. Uh, I, I just flash forward as I'm very much in touch with everybody. They're very much supporting me. And, and deeply in my life, this foster family that I had. And you mentioned several social workers in the book, but one main one, Mel. So can you tell mm-hmm. me about her and how you feel about her work with you? You know, I think I think Mel, I, I, I had a social worker and a lawyer that I give a lot of credit for. You know, all these folks are, I would say, overwhelmed in the system. They're, they're trying to like bail water out of a boat that's sinking called the foster care system. And... We underfund a system when we hack away at the safety net with a machete. So families are over-reliant to all these things and we end up taking their kids in. And then my sister's a social worker now, Jessica. And I asked her, I'm like, what do you do on a day-to-day basis? Like, what's social work to you? And she said, paperwork. All I am allowed to do is paperwork. I have to spend so much of my time. And I look at Mel and I look at my lawyer, Susan, at the time. And I think about all they did for me. Imperfect as they were. Mel... Mel um, was one of those people who showed up at the right moment and did just enough. And I truly believe cared about us, but was part of a system that did not give her the resources to focus on us fully. And the thing I always appreciated about her was something I struggled with all the way in my childhood into early adulthood, which was, I am not a child, even though I'm a child at this time. And people would say to me like, oh, now you can be a kid. I had no idea what that meant. No idea. And Mel gave it to me straight. Mel gave it to me straight. You know, she told me where things were and what I had to do to get what I wanted. Bullshit free. And for that, I am eternally grateful because it did help me. As you know, I tell the story of the book of getting back into a foster home where I wanted to be. And Mel laid it out. And I would not, I would have been so stubborn and unaware. But she helped me understand that. You know, we're friends on Facebook. Uh, I, I know these <laughs> folks and... I am grateful for the moments they had in my life. You started very early as an advocate, uh, in high school even. You ended up in D.C. lobbying for foster care change. It's pretty amazing. Part of it was, um, I I think kids seek love and, and affirmation from adults. And we try and find things that give us that. And for me, I was able to be good at something, which was trying to get things to change. And I got recognized for that really at this time period of my life, really for the first time. And I got to go down to DC and and work on a bill to um, support foster kids. And I was given media training and basically given the first real visage into how things are actually done. And that experience changed my life. It gave me a sense of agency and it helped me understand that I was going to do something like this in my life, not as a hobby, but as part of my 
core mission. It was pretty remarkable. We, we were flown from all over the country, foster kids for the first time, and we were dispersed across Capitol Hill to work on sharing our stories and convincing organizations or, or people in Congress to support a bill that would help foster kids that were transitioning out of foster care called the Chafee Independence Act. And it passed with bipartisan support, which is hard to imagine today. But it was a remarkable experience that changed my life. And as you said earlier, and this is kind of a model you you seem to live by, it's like you can figure it out. You can change things. We can change <laughs> things. Figure it out. Yeah. Figure it out. Figure it out. <laughs> yeah. Uh, my, my team at Disney, I used to work there. They got me a mug that said, figure it out and a matching t-shirt. Um, because I say that all the time. We we have the power to create the world we want to live in. There's some sort of like learned helplessness that I just don't understand in our country where we think we can't do big things anymore. But we have the power to create a different world that we want to live in. My life is impossible, and yet here I am. I mean, utterly impossible. And my brother and sister too. And yet here we are, and I own my home. Like I'm caring for my mother. You know, I, I have a beautiful life. How impossible is that? We collectively, every time we wake up, <laughs> we get to collectively decide what kind of world we want to live in. I, I remember, and this is in the book, I, I talk about it briefly, but I remember when I was about, I don't know exactly, around four, I was begging in Grand Central. And up ahead of me uh, in the morning commute, the concourse at Grand Central was so full. And I used to beg there. And this particular morning, up ahead of me, about four feet, it just opened up. People were trying to avoid me. They didn't look at me. And then they came behind me. And I remember thinking, oh my gosh, I'm not part of this world. They don't see me. I'm invisible. And that was jarring. And today I think about when I look at homeless people in Los Angeles or anywhere I travel, I look and it's hard. And then I think, what can I do? And this book is part of that, but so is my involvement in my local community. I give you just one example. The you know, people in LA are really up in arms around the condition and the state and the number of homeless. And yet when I talk to people, a lot of folks are just, you know, screaming at the mayor. But if you understand it or even spend a moment, you begin to understand the mayor has almost no power. It's this other body called the Board of Supervisors, and it's a county function. Here we are, educated, smart people living sophisticated lives on TikTok and doing all sorts of things. And yet the issue of our time in our city, we don't understand because we have this selective indifference to it. So instead of complaining, I ask people, I'm like, Find out who your supervisor is. Here's a link. I truly believe all of us can do something. And that's why I did this. That's why I do this. That's why I live the way that I do, is my belief that we are good people and we have the power in a democracy and a republic that we're in to change things anytime we want. Well, you do have seem to have a special gift, though, David. <laughs> and maybe it's coming from your mom, let's, let's say. <laughs> um, when you were a senior in high school, you got yourself to Spain. <laughs> you, you arranged the whole thing yourself. Uh, I, I want to say rigged it, right? Um, <laughs> you can say fraud. Just, we can just say oh, you know I what? Let's call it fraud. That's okay. But you know what? It, it worked out great. You ended up in school at Vassar. You went to UCLA Law School, did it all yourself. But you also talk about occasional angels. So t mm. tell me about that. Wow. Yeah. So, you know, throughout the book, I, I share stories and they're there's there's so many that had the just enough at the right moment to salvage me or my family. And, you know, one example, there's a restaurant in New York, New England called Ponderosa. It's an all you can eat. So you pay at the door and then you go in. And my brother, sister and I used to sit outside in the parking lot and wait for people to leave. And we'd sneak in and sit at their table. And I remember this one time I, I thought we were caught and the manager, I was like, oh, no, she didn't see us. The manager's going to let us pretend to be this family. She doesn't see us. She didn't realize we switched. And she did. And she winked at me. And, wow. and we ate. <laughs> we ate. And we wouldn't have that night. We wouldn't have eaten. And I, I don't remember the last time we ate before then. And God knows when we would have eaten after. Holly, Gabriella in Spain. I moved from Holly and Steve's to Spain. And I went there and Holly began a big project to rebuild this person. And I, and I got started and then I got to Spain and I met this Northern Spanish woman from the Pyrenees in Vice Basco, which is a region in Spain. And she saw me, she saw all of me. And she, she just leaned in and 
you know, loved me relentlessly. And I consider her one. The Corbett, I shouldn't say their name. Another family got us to summer camp. And what an experience to look over the fence and see that there is something on the other side. And that sustained me. I mean, it was not long, but it gave me just enough. And there's so many moments like that when we were given just enough or we took just enough and people went along with it. I, I, a lot of those moments. And I, that's what I think about, you know, people ask me all the time, you know, do you give money to homeless people, which I think is interesting on many levels. And I'll tell you, I never walk by a kid. I know the right answer is to give money and, and to nonprofits and support Right. Policy. So they can get services so that, yeah, yeah. right, right. So that it's, it's, that but it's I can't actually walk by good. a kid. I can't walk by a kid. Because all those people who occasionally gave me a dollar. So I, I think about people like Holly or Gabriella or the manager at Ponderosa. You know, these people that intervened or the, the family that sent us to summer camp. I don't know that I'd be here. I wouldn't be this person. I don't know that I would have had the wherewithal. I, ho- I hope I would. But I don't know. The man in that first chapter who let this family die. The first chapter when we're wandering and dying of exposure. This man had the power of life and death over my family to let us in the shelter. And he let us in. He could have made a different decision. He's one of my angels. Yeah. Yeah. And you certainly didn't belong in that shelter, but, and no. he, he told you that, but he let you in anyway. <laughs> he sure did. Because, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So uh, you talk a lot about hope in the book mm-hmm. as well. Hope and joy. They, you say they live in us. They live in mm. you. Yeah. And that's something that developed for you or, or do you think you had that in, you when you were little? Oh, gosh. I like to think that I had it in me my whole life. I I had a fun life in some respects. You know, I barely went to school and I lived in New York City and, and cities like that. And I got to have this adventure. And, and believe me, there was a bill for that adventure. But nonetheless, <laughs> I had an adventure. You know, <laughs> there's a story I don't tell, but they had this program in New York where they would take kids out of shelters and bring them to Catskill Game Farm. And uh, they, it's a petting zoo. And they gave you these bag of breadcrumbs. And I shoved the breadcrumbs out of the bag into my pocket because I was like, I'm going to eat these later. And <laughs> then they put you in the petting zoo area. And all these animals came out, these baby animals, sheeps and all these things. And I lied down and I pissed myself because I was so scared because I had never, ever in my life heard about or seen anything but a rat, a cat, and a dog. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and wow. all these llamas came out and they were trying to nibble at my pocket. I thought they were trying to eat me. Um, <laughs> I, you know, there was no A for apple in my life. So, you know, I, there was adventure in my life and excitement. And uh, I, I don't, I'm not planning to raise my child that way. But it was, it was something there. And, and I got to learn to take care of my mom and my family and have our imperfect love we had for each other. I had a lot of great experiences. I had, I, like I said, I think of my life as like Forrest Gump meets Hillbilly Elegy, maybe with a little bit of Precious, if your listeners are familiar with all three. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. it has been <laughs> one hell of an adventure. And for that, I, I'm grateful. Hope is, is how I end the book. Hope is um, yeah, what I'm- nourishes me. Yeah, I'm hoping. Do you have your book there? Are you willing to read the last couple of paragraphs? I sure am. Let me go back to my laptop. Give me one second. I see it here. It is hope that has made me brave. Hope that has kept me clawing for the surface when I was drowning, hungry, bruised, torn down, and almost erased. Hope that has preserved my fight and my identity and my soul. Relentless, insanely impossible hope that has gotten me to this chair on this hillside with this black gown and awkward cap, my full family behind me and around me. I will drive west infused with that spirit and determination. I am finally my whole self. The next morning, I slowly drive my 1994 Chrysler out the stone arch of the main gate and onto Raymond Avenue. Upstate New York is in full bloom. The trees and even the weeds are vibrantly alive. It's a 2,600 miles to Los Angeles, and I'm going to law school. Not as a vessel of the trauma that happened to me, but as an out gay man determined to hasten change. Driving down I-95 
the sun on my back and spread through my eyes. I think of all my foster siblings and other foster kids whom I met along the way. Their faces flash by in my mind. My heart presses toward them, hoping they've made it out too. My soul holds on to a hope that some have even made it out of... Oof. My soul holds on to a hope that some have even made it out of the poverty and violence, that they are all safe and determining their future. Hope should be theirs too. I know that I'm not going to law school for me. I'm going with the determination to help them, to help kids like me off the streets, to make sure they are never put through a system that grinds away hope. This mission gives meaning to everything I have seen and experienced. It will give shape. Hmm. It will give shape to everything I do. Out of all the darkness, it becomes my home. It's very moving, David, and very beautifully written. Thank you. Are you a foster dad now? Is that what I understand? <laughs> so much like Holly, I became an accidental. Um, my sister. Um, in her work in Los Angeles as a social worker would often have me mentor mm -hmm. and get to know some of the kids in her caseloads. And those are some of her colleagues, especially those she thought had, um, might be queer or might have high potential. And I would help them along the journey, connecting them to resources or whatever I could do. Some of them I, I had ongoing mentorship relationships with. And this one young man came in and I just fell in love. He was uh, a child and he reminded me of myself when I went into foster care at 12 and he was so bright and so wonderful. And I just saw, I saw through his wit and his intelligence to the pain that I knew very well and uh, went from mentorship to just what became, he became my son and uh He's doing great. He's wow. gone to wow. college. He's at grad school now. He's married. And he's, I just, we do a weekly family phone call. And um, all of us get together on the, on the, on the uh, video chat on Zoom. And his brothers, he has three brothers that I, I, uh, I work with. They're in my life. I love them. And we all get on the Zoom and our girlfriends, um, uh, just a beautiful mix of people that are their family that they have curated just like I did mine and we uh we spent time together I love I love him so much he taught me so much and you know I think of the people that sh shaped me I think he is one of the biggest architects I want to ask you one more thing that I ask all my guests and if you can dig deep for this and I, I know you can mm. what is the one thing that no one would ever know about you unless you told them Mm. I think one thing that people would be probably surprised to learn is I find it incredibly hard to form deep friendships, to be vulnerable with people. And so I quickly will work a room at an event or talk in front of a crowd. But if you ask me to hang out, I find it very daunting. And I think that's a skill I work on every day, and especially now that I've been through very significant therapy and I've done this book and other things. It's something I still work on, which is to be vulnerable in these spaces, to learn to chill and not try and perform. And uh, I think many people in my life would be surprised by that. Yes, because you present as a pretty open, affable, performing kind of guy, <laughs> right? And I am, but it's that part of, I think, a childhood that teaches you to hang out, to play, that I never got. And that's a muscle that I think it's harder to form the older you get because the circumstances are so different. There's so much responsibility, so many demands on you. And when you're a child, you have the space and the flexibility to learn how to be a friend and to make friends. And in my older age, I have started to do that. I've worked really hard at that. And I have wonderful people in my life that I call my friends and they are but that is a skill that is like yourself doing, doing the work that you do, despite what, what you shared. For me, it's the same. I do it and I work very hard at it. And I have people I love that are my friends, but it is something I find daunting. Mm, I understand. Is there anything else 
that you might want to add, David? I think I've said it, but I just want to underline that not everyone listening or that will listen or that will read can foster or adopt. And I'm not asking people to. What I'm asking people to do is to care and to spend a little bit of time figuring out how to deploy that careness to change things. And all of us can do that. I am running a campaign called Donate Your Small Talk, which is just say something interesting about kids. Don't ask someone what they did that weekend. No one really wants to know how your vacation was. Talk about something interesting. Say something interesting about the children that need us to talk about them. I, I use fun facts. I'm like, hey, did you know Steve Jobs was adopted out of foster care? People are like, what? No. <laughs> did you know Willie Nelson was a foster kid or Cher? Really fun facts. Depends on your community. You may want to use either of those or both. Talk about something. That's caring. That's showing that you are doing something. Vote differently. Ask questions. Become a volunteer like a CASA. But I just ask people that are listening to really hear my message, which is I'm sharing the most vulnerable part of my soul to inspire you to do something, not just be entertained or moved, but to take action. And that's the part that I just have so much hope that we as a country and as a people will do. Thank you, David. Thank you very much for that. And thank you for being part of the Bonus Babies podcast and for writing your very important book and for all the work that you do. Really, truly kudos to you. Thank you. I really appreciate it. I'm a huge fan. I'm really grateful to talk to you and, and to the audience. You've created the family, the community. Thank you. Thank you, David, for sharing your story with us and for your incredible book, A Place Called Home. The foster care system is struggling at the moment. And despite the fact that there are many good foster parents, there are also many bad ones. And it feels like what's most important is to get more good ones into the system so that the bad ones can go by the wayside. Thanks again, David, for being part of the solution. Our next guest is Kendra Jukins. She was adopted at three years old, but when her adoptive dad died, her adoptive mother couldn't and wouldn't take care of her. So she was in and out of foster care and therapeutic group homes for all of her adolescent years. She's now the podcaster of Hear Us Yell. So join us next week for Kendra Jukins. Take care and be well. If you see something, say something. If you suspect a child's health or safety is jeopardized in any way by parents or anyone else, contact the Child Protective Services Agency in your county. 24-hour hotlines are staffed by trained social workers who will help you through the process and you can do so anonymously. In California, you can call the Child Protection Hotline at 800-540-4000. So if you see something, say something. You might be saving a child's life. If you want to know more about becoming a CASA anywhere in the country, go to nationalcasagal.org. And in LA, casala.org. And if you want to know more about becoming a foster parent, check out the National Foster Parent Association at nfponline.org. There's also faithfosterfamilies.org and adoptuskids.org. There's tons of other information online as well, so you can just hunt around. We also want to thank the supremely talented Christina Apostolopoulos for her beautiful original music. You can find her music on Spotify or Instagram at Christina Aposto. And also thank you to Yukon Har for his engineering. Thanks for listening. And if you like what you hear and you find it as valuable as we do, please rate us and hit subscribe. Make a donation at bonusbabies.org. See you next time.